Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word which is a tether for us in tumultuous times. Your word which is Clarity for us in uncertain times. Your word which brings us security in scary times. Your word which always brings us back to Jesus. In whom is all of our hope. In whom is all of our joy. The one who has forgiven us and saved us. The one that we worship and for whom we live. Christ, we thank you that you are securely seated on high at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning even now, coming soon to rule and reign on this earth. Lord, we rejoice in these things. You are truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are great and greatly to be praised. You are exalted above every circumstance and every name. And we ask that this morning our hearts would be obedient to these truths. The Holy Spirit, you would help us to have a more glorious vision of Christ who is for us and to whom we belong. Help me now, please, Lord, to teach and preach for the glory of Jesus and the good of his church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to remember the context of the book of Revelation. The context is a difficult time. 
We have the church near the end of the first century and they're experiencing persecution under the Roman government. The likes of which none of us have ever known. Some of them will be imprisoned. Some of them will be tortured. Some of them will be executed purely for their faith in Jesus Christ, purely for believing that there's a Lord in the land other than Caesar. And his name is Jesus. And that would become in the Roman Empire a capital offense. And the church would be persecuted. Christians would be hunted. Believers would be tortured, executed, imprisoned. This was their reality. We have difficult days of our own, to be sure. But this was their reality. And this is the reality into which the Lord spoke by giving this revelation to John. And what these churches needed in their difficult days was a strong reminder of the greatness of their Lord Jesus Christ. What they needed most in the face of great opposition and uncertainty and fear was the exaltation of Christ in his glory. Certainly the world seemed out of control for God's people at that time. It did personally for John, who was exiled on the island of Patmos, 40 miles off the coast of modern Greek, uh, excuse me, Turkey. But it wasn't just personal for John, it was global for the church. The Roman Empire was the world empire. And in the face of that, the church, God's people, seemed in many ways and felt most days insignificant, irrelevant, and powerless against the forces that were. They were a contrary kingdom in the midst of a powerful kingdom. They had a contrary Lord in the midst of a domineering Lord, Caesar. And accordingly, the church was unpopular. And the church was outnumbered. And the church was targeted. They were radical days. Not so different from our days. Leon Morris, in commenting on their context, said, the Christians were a pitiably small group, persecuted by mighty foes. To all outward appearance, their situation was hopeless. Get this sentence. But it is only as Christ is seen for what he really is that anything else can be seen for what it really is. There it is. It is only as Christ is seen for what he really is that anything else can be seen for what it really is. And that's the goal of the text. To bring everything else in submission to the glory of Jesus Christ. Every other circumstance, every other heartache, every other fear, every bit of opposition in submission to Jesus Christ in his glory. We don't see things clearly until we see Jesus clearly. And that's what the text helps us to do today. And we have a great example in John. John received this revelation during a difficult time exiled again on the island of Patmos and suffering for his faith. He was there in this sort of uh, faraway prison 
because of the testimony of Jesus, because he was preaching the gospel. He was suffering for being faithful. We're used to suffering when we're unfaithful and there's consequences. John was suffering for doing the right thing, behaving the right way. He was suffering for being faithful. And here's an important point. In his suffering, he was seeking the Lord. It said there in verse 10, I was in the spirit. You know, when we suffer, it's easy to get in the flesh. It's easy to think about me and my problems and how I feel and how this affects me and what about me and the way that I'm entitled and what I deserve. And it's easy when we're suffering, I know, to get in the flesh and be inward focused. But John is a great example. He was suffering for doing the right thing. And he was upward focused in the moment. He says, I wasn't in the flesh and consumed with myself. I was in the spirit, which means to be consumed with Jesus. That's what it means. I was in the spirit. He was meditating on, thinking about, giving attention to, filling his heart and his mind with the things of Jesus in the midst of his suffering. And I want you to see what the result was of that. The result was this vision that he gets of Christ in his glory. In other words, the result was a bigger sense and view and revelation and experience of Jesus. And with that, a tremendous amount of clarity. I know now how to view the Roman Empire and its opposition, having seen Jesus in his glory. I know now how to deal with this momentary light affliction of being exiled to Patmos, having seen Jesus in his glory. I know now how to think about the uncertain future, having seen Jesus in his glory. Because in his suffering, he was upward focused, consumed with the things of Jesus rather than himself and his own feelings. He had clarity and hope and comfort. Indeed, indeed, this risen Lord would lay his hand upon John and say to him, don't be afraid. It begs the question about this. What are, what are you currently suffering for or over or through? Again, there's lots of ways that we suffer. What are you currently facing? What is the root of that suffering? Sometimes we know, and we could make some corrections. Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we suffer for doing the right thing. But in all of our suffering, we've got to be seeking Jesus. I know what it is to look for comfort in other places. I know what it is to look for a savior in another person. I know what it is to pin my hopes on a certain outcome. But we've got to learn what John was learning. That only Jesus saves. That Jesus is the outcome. Jesus is the only one who is fully and finally and forever for us. So in all of our suffering, we seek him. And we discover that when we seek other things in our suffering, we get lesser things in return. Whatever you're seeking in your suffering, what is it getting for you? 
It's lesser than what we get in Jesus. And whatever you're seeking in your suffering that isn't Christ, what sort of things then are you hearing? You see, John, it says in the text, heard a voice like a trumpet. What that denotes is that it was clear. A trumpet blast is a clear sound. It's a distinctive sound. Like that of a bugle sounding reveille. It's, it's clear. You know it when there's a trumpet blast. The text is telling us that John in his suffering, because he was seeking Jesus, had this clarity that he was hearing truth. The danger of suffering is that we so easily hear and believe lies. Especially when we're inward focused. But the hope of being upward focused on Christ is that we have this trumpet-like clarity where we hear truth. John was hearing and seeing and receiving truth in this revelation. That's the need of the day. The truth of the glory, the power, and the majesty of Christ above all else. And he learns very quickly that Christ is the center of all things pertaining to the church, God's people. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? So it was so clear he figured out, I'll be able to see this thing. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands was one like the son of man. We've learned by now who's the son of man. Jesus. Verse 20 gives us the interpretation of the lampstands. Jesus said the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Throughout the book of Revelation, the number seven will represent a complete body or a complete representation. The seven churches that he's writing to that he mentioned in verse 11 that we'll begin to study next week were literal, historic, actual churches. But they were representative of the church throughout, of all, throughout all of history with its strengths and its weaknesses, its successes and its failures, its commendations and its warnings from Christ. So the seven churches represent the whole church. And the church is called a lamp, seven lamps. Jesus in the middle of the lamp. Because we are the church. Remember, the church is not a building. The church is a people who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are the church meant to be lamps, lights in this dark world. It's a dark world now like it was then. Philippians 2.15 tells us to do all things without grumbling or complaining so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights, lamps in the world. So here we have the darkness of the Roman Empire, which was a culture of death huge and looming on the horizon of all of humanity and history. And somewhere in there, we have the church. And in this darkness of death, the church appears as a light represented by these seven lamps. And in the midst of this light is Jesus. In verse 13, and in the middle of the lamps was one like a son of man. In the middle of the light, in the middle of the churches, in the center of the church is 
Jesus is what the text is showing us. Jesus is there. He said to the disciples in Matthew 28, he said, in Matthew 20, 28, excuse me, 28, 20, he said, lo, I am with you always. He said in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. And what the church was discovering then is what the church knows now is that Jesus seems to be most present when the days are most difficult. And the church is threatened by external powers. And the first thing about this vision is that Christ is with her, the church. That Christ is in the center. He's there. And this reminds us, the church, of what it's all about. Of what being the church is all about. Even what going to church is all about. It is, after all, as the vision makes clear, about Jesus. Being the church, our lives, having been saved by the blood of Christ, is all about Jesus above everything else. The gathering of the church is all about Jesus. When we come to church, we're supposed to realize that we are gathering to, for, and around Jesus. That's what it's meant to be. And when we scatter as a church, there's a church gathered and there's a church scattered. When we scatter as a church, we're to do so with Jesus. When he commissioned them in Matthew 28, 20, he said, go into all the nations and lo, I am with you always. I am in the midst. I'm in the center. In the darkest places, in the darkest days, I am never apart from you. Jesus is the center of the church. He's the source of the church. He's the head of the church. He's the goal of the church. He's the chief shepherd, the senior pastor of the church. And this was, and this is, the church's secret in the world. We're outnumbered by the world. We're targeted by the world. We're unpopular in the world. How do we persevere? How do we maintain? How do we continue in joy? The secret of the church is that Jesus is at her center. This is what we have going for us. This is the only thing the church has ever had going for it. Christ and his presence. And so what the church must do, what we must do in days like this and every day, what the church must do is be attentive and faithful to the fact that Christ is in our midst, in the middle. Faithful and attentive to when we're gathered and when we're scattered, that it's two, four, and around Jesus. When we're working, when we're playing. When we're preaching and in our professions. So then we got to ask the question, if we're going to deal with this stuff honestly, we, we got to ask the question, what, what is at the center of your life? I'll tell you what's at the center of your life. The same thing that's at the center of your mind when you come to church. That's how you tell. When you come here, is it primarily about your needs? Are they on center stage? 
I understand that. I've got needs too. When you come here, is it primarily about your agenda? Is it on center stage? A certain desire, a certain perspective, a certain course? Is it primarily about your pain? Is that what's on the center stage of your life? I know what it's like to have pain on the center stage of my life. Is it a person? A politic? A preference? I'll tell you what's on the center stage of your life. It's the same thing that's on the center stage of your life when you show up for the gathering of the church. So let's just make it real easy. Is it about you or is it about Jesus? I know what we do. I'm, I'm just like you. Okay, I'm sitting under my own preaching. I'm just, I'm just like you. We, it's, we just make it about ourselves. We just do. And part of what the cross of Jesus Christ has saved us from is ourselves. I mean, Jesus said it point blank. He said, you want to follow me? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. But we, we got to die at some point. We got to die at some point. To die means at some point, that person or that politic or that pain has got to get off center stage and we've got to put Jesus on center stage. So that when we're out in the world or that when we walk in the building, the main thing on our mind is Jesus. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to have kids and barely make it through the door. I know what it's like to feel alone in a room of hundreds of people. I understand that. But self-absorption will never move us forward. What John didn't do was sit on Patmos and think about how much it was a bummer. Rather, he fixed his eyes on Jesus and discovered a greater glory. See, the gospel is meant to be for us centripetal. Centripetal, right? A force that's always moving towards the center. Jesus is at the center. And the gospel is meant to have a centripetal action in our lives, always moving us toward Jesus. Jesus is the one who is in the middle of the churches and of our lives as a church. And so the text continues. Verse 13, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Remember the book of Revelation employs symbolism. John saw this. It was a vision. It was truth communicated through symbols. We've talked about that. So I don't expect necessarily that when we get to heaven and we say Jesus, can somebody, and we see Jesus, can somebody say, I can't wait? When we see Jesus, I don't necessarily expect that this is what he'll look like. This was meant to communicate a certain thing at a certain time to a certain people. But it communicates. 
And it's communicating to a people who are tempted to see things larger in the reality that Jesus Christ himself is the sovereign Lord over all the universe. And so that's what's behind all the imagery. And so when John sees Jesus and he's in a robe, maybe he thought about what Isaiah saw in chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Maybe that was in the background of his mind. The kingship of God. That's what's being communicated. I see Jesus and he's in a robe. I remember when Isaiah saw the God of Israel and the robe filled the temple. And he only saw God exalted that way when the earthly king was dead. And I see Caesar and Rome threatening the existence of the church. But I see that there is a greater king enthroned and in a robe. And there was a golden sash around his chest. Lots of people in the Old Testament wore robes, but priests wore golden sashes. So I'm assuming that this would have communicated to John that Jesus is not only the sovereign king over all the earth who is enthroned, but he's also the great high priest of the church. Hebrews chapter 4. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings or temptations that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. John would have been reminded and the whole church is reminded that Jesus is not only the king, but he's the great high priest, the one that we can go to in difficult days, the one who's sympathetic. He knows failure. He knew betrayal. He knew loss. He knew pain. He knew temptation, but he himself was without sin. Therefore, he was able to give his life for our sins. And we now come to him as a sympathetic, merciful high priest with full access to the throne of God where we may receive grace in the times of greatest need. It was a time of great need for John at that moment. And after you notice someone's clothing, and it always says something to you, then you look to their face. What is their face saying to me? Because I don't want to just read the book by the cover. I mean, everyone has a bad outfit. <laughs> but what, what does the face say? His head and his hair and his eyes. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that when Daniel saw Jesus represented with his white hair like wool, like snow. He wasn't thinking, wow, Jesus has gotten old since the ascension. <laughs> he was only 33. I was there that day. It's not what he was thinking. 
He was thinking of Daniel, the prophet, and the vision that he saw. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool. You see, at every juncture, at everything that John looks at, he is seeing the deity of Jesus. This is meant to affirm to John and to us that Jesus is truly Lord God. He's pictured just like the ancient of days from Daniel. This white hair, which speaks of deity and, important for our understanding of God, purity. Deity and purity. White as wool, white as snow. Well, those are Old Testament ways of talking about sin having been washed away. The prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 51 was, Purify me, O God, with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. And the promise of God to a sinful, wayward group of people was in Isaiah chapter 1. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are like red, like crimson, they will be like wool. John, remembering all these texts, seeing this vision, realizes that Christ is both the promise fulfilled and the prayer answered for cleansing, for purity, for the forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, the cross, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is both the fulfilled promise and the answered prayer concerning purity, forgiveness, being washed white as snow. John sees that and then he, he can't avoid the eyes. He's got to write about the eyes. Daniel had what's called a theophany, experience a theophany, an appearance of God. I would suggest to you even a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in Daniel chapter 10. And there's striking resemblance, striking resemblance to what we see in Revelation chapter 1, Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. His body was like a barrel. That's um, not a barrel like, not big like this, but it's some... Um, gem. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet were like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of many tumult. What, 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 do, you th- what, what, what do you think John is thinking? He's thinking that there's no, there's no mistaking it. This Jesus whom I'm now seeing is certainly the sovereign God of all the universe. He's the one Daniel saw. He's the one Isaiah spoke of. He's the one the psalmist prayed to. Again, his eyes speak of deity. And fire in scripture always speaks of judgment. Christ is the sovereign Lord who is sovereign over judgment. And his eyes represent this. 
Hebrews again, chapter 4. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. John's getting the picture that Jesus is deity. He's God. He's the one true God. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's high and exalted. And he's all seen. And he's the one who holds judgment in his hands, represented by the fire in his eyes. And he sees our lives. The things we hide, he sees. The things we think, he knows. And though there is grace and forgiveness, this ought to move us toward holiness. But not only that, not only a purifying effect in the church, but he also sees the wicked in the world. Nothing escapes his attention. And John knew Christ sees this Roman oppression. Every Christian that will be beheaded, everyone that will be sawn in two, everyone that will be imprisoned, everyone that will be torn asunder by lions, Jesus sees it. And Jesus sees the evils of our days. Every abortion. ISIS. Every evil he sees. And he is the one, the only one, to whom we are accountable. His feet. Next he sees his feet. I have to pause right there for a moment. Forget about his feet for a moment. I mentioned abortion. It is perhaps the greatest evil facing our world. I know many of us in this room are guilty of that. There is forgiveness in Jesus. There is forgiveness only in Jesus. The only sin that Jesus won't forgive is the one that we refuse to repent of. I know many of us are guilty of that. There's cleansing in Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God. I'll say it this way. If ISIS were to repent, there would be forgiveness. I want us to sit with the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, not with the horrors of our sins alone. What do we do with those sins? We take them to Jesus. And it's a sure place to take him because he's got feet like burnished bronze. What do you think John thought of now? He sees these feet that are like bronze. What does he think of? He's thinking of that same vision in Daniel chapter 10 where God is represented there with arms and feet of polished bronze. Again, speaking of the deity of Christ and his sovereign strength. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel had a vision of the kingdoms of the world. And the Roman Empire was visioned as having feet that were iron mixed with clay. 
Iron, because the Roman Empire was strong and it would trample many. Clay, because it would crumble, ultimately. Jesus has feet like bronze. What is bronze? Bronze is iron mixed with copper. Iron is strong, but it rusts. Copper doesn't rust, but it's really pliable. You put the two together and you get the strength of both. Jesus is everlasting and unbending. Jesus is everlasting and unbending. His feet picture for us the sure foundation of our lives. His feet warn us against building our lives on any other reality, on any other person, on any other thing. Jesus alone has the feet of bronze. He's unending and he's unbending. He's sovereign over all the nations. All the other kingdoms of the world have feet that will crumble. Only Jesus is eternal. And then he heard that voice again. And it says there that the voice was like the sound of many waters. Again, a picture of deity. I'm sure that John at least thought of Ezekiel 43 which is a picture of God's glory coming to Israel. Suddenly, the glory of the God of Israel appeared from the east. The sound of his coming, his voice, literally, the sound of his voice was like the roar of rushing waters and the whole landscape shone with his glory. This was a picture given to Ezekiel of the end times. When God would return to Israel in Christ, when his glory would once again fill the land and his voice being like many waters says that there is coming a day where the voice of God and its truth will drown out every lie in the land. Where the voice of God and its truth will drown out every deception in the world. Where the voice of God and its truth will be louder than all the messages of the world and their lies. This was great encouragement for him in difficult days where the voice of Rome was so loud, where the voice of the opposition was so audible. The voice of the Lord is like many waters. And then his right hand, that was a trippy thing to see. His right hand with seven stars in it. We're told in verse 20 that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. There's two ways to interpret that. Either they're angels, like angels' angels, like we think of with wings type of angels, or the word can also be translated messengers. Most scholars say that they might be then leaders within the church. Jesus is holding in his hand the seven representative leaders of the church. It doesn't make sense to me that they'd be angels, really. We don't see that sort of care and protection for angels by God, by Christ in Scripture. Kind of a different gig. It also wouldn't make sense because then what we would have is Jesus, a heavenly entity, communicating to John, an earthly entity, to communicate to the angels, a heavenly entity, to communicate back to the church in chapter 2, an earthly entity. It just seems a little convoluted. So I think that these are, in the right hand of Christ, a representative 
body of leadership within the church, representing those seven churches and all the churches, I think. Here's a salient point about that. The right hand of God speaks of strength and protection, of covering and care. There's no doubt in my mind that when John saw the right hand of Christ, he thought of this passage from Isaiah, the Lord speaking to Israel, Isaiah 41, saying, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. A representative of the church held in the righteous right hand of God. Some of them would die. Some of them would go to prison. Some of them would be exiled. All of them were outnumbered, unpopular, and would be hunted. And Jesus says, I've got it in my hand. I'm the God of all the universe. I'm the God of Israel. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He's not only holding us, he fights on behalf of his church. For John saw a sword coming from his mouth. And Ephesians chapter 6 told us about the sword. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. And it's an offensive weapon. And Jesus uses it offensively. We saw two weeks ago when we read about his second coming in Revelation 19, verse 21, that when he comes back, he defeats his enemies with the sword that comes from his mouth, with just a word. The same way that he spoke creation into existence is the same way that he will victoriously redeem all of it. With the word of his mouth. I'm sure John thought of Isaiah chapter 11. But with righteousness, he will judge, war, judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Oh, John, don't be overwhelmed by Rome. The sovereign king has a sword. Hebrews, again, chapter four. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. You see, Jesus doesn't just use his sword on his enemies. He uses his sword on his beloved. The word of God. We don't just read it, it reads us. We're not meant to study it only. It studies us. It's alive and it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating the very core and depth of who we are, revealing our innermost thoughts and desires that we might bring them to Jesus and let him work transformation in our lives. And then finally, it just kind of all came together for John and he saw his face, just said his face with all those other details was like the brightest shining sun. The sun shining in all of its strength. Daniel tried to describe the same thing and said in chapter 10, verse 6, that it was like lightning. I don't know, synonyms. Oh my gosh, it's like lightning. It's like the sun. Speaks of glory. And it speaks of hope in God's presence. God told Moses and Aaron to bless Israel this way. 
Numbers chapter 6. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel and then I will bless them. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Certainly it speaks of glory, but it also speaks of his comforting presence. If there's blessing in God's face shining upon us, and John saw his face like the sun in all of its strength, then there is blessing meant for us as the church. You know what happens to stars in the presence of the sun? They disappear. You don't see them. When the sun is shining in all its strength, you don't see the stars. The stars are helpful in dark times. But the stars are nothing compared to the strength of the sun. Don't put your eyes on people. Put your eyes on Jesus. Even the brightest star fades when we get a right view of Christ. Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his hand upon me saying, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. It doesn't say he laid his hand upon me. It says he laid his right hand upon me. But he's holding stars in his right hand. How does he do that? Did he drop the star? Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) See, symbolism doesn't work that way, does it? It tells us something more deep and wonderful tells us that Jesus holds the whole church in his hand. He's got the big picture in control and he cares about the needs of the individual. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, the cross, and behold, I am alive forevermore, the resurrection. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Only Jesus. You know, the thing about death is that it seems so big. It's not bigger than Jesus. He says, I hold the keys. Death and Hades don't have the final word. The destruction of death and the power of hell will not carry the day. The strength of Rome the tides of our culture, the things that we lose, the pain that we feel, none of them will carry the day. Jesus says, I'm the A to Z, the first to last. And I hold the keys over the biggest things in the world. I am greater than. I am Jesus Christ who loves you 
and gave his life for you. Thank you, Lord. How glorious you are. Thank you for revealing yourself to John, to the churches, and to us in this way. As I prayed in the beginning, Lord, that you would help our lives to fall in line with this. Please, Lord. Pray for those who are going through hard times right now, that they would look upward, not inward. For those of us with exciting things in our life that we love and we look forward to, that they wouldn't cloud our vision of you who loves us and gave himself for us. Holy Spirit, draw us deeper into the person in the glory of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if there's anything that's messing with your life with Christ, deal with it today. Any sin that needs to be repented of, any hidden thing that needs to be brought into the light, anything that's got to be surrendered through worship. You know, John fell as a dead man before Christ, just flat on his face. And in that position, he received great comfort. Jesus came and laid his hand upon him. Maybe you need to come get on your face today. Maybe you need to be reminded that he was dead, but he lives through taking communion today. Whatever you got to do to get with Jesus today, do that. He loves you and he gave himself for you.